Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about religion, a little bit about geology, a little bit about uh, about space and science. But I wanted to start off thinking about the idea of sacred places. For some reason, there, there are always central places that people want to go to. And experience personally and stand in awe. I, I think about the, in the secular version, there are like, uh, you know, museums and stuff like this. Oh yeah. If, when I went to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, I remember feeling a, a kind of church-like sensation, even though there was bonkers with people running all over and making uh-huh. all kinds of noise. Uh, there, I had this sense of like, I'm in a special place. Oh yeah. This, this is a different place. Yes, well, I think I think museums are a great example because I feel the same way about the Met in New York. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like it's it's so feel it like just just as a place, Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much the a place of pilgrimage for individuals who are interested in history and art and religion, and and then you go in and you have all of these pieces that themselves are from all of these distant sacred places and sacred times. Oh, totally, yeah, it's great. Like you get to go to the it's almost like the the catch net Mm -hmm. for. for sacred places throughout history. But when you go to a sacred place like this, the, you know, these places that have a history, I I almost feel like you are, uh, you're playing on the same kind of awe that you might experience if you went to and believed in a haunted house. Mm -hmm. Oh (laughs) yeah. That like, uh, that, that some, somehow a kind of energy has collected there over time and it uh it gives you this sense of uh the sense of being part of history to be there. Yeah, I mean we we sort of map out our worlds with these with these pinpoints uh that that all the energy seems to converge around. Uh and and then when we visit those places we're we're taking part in that energy. We have all these expectations and, and we're engaging in sort of the, the collective expectations of that place. Now, this is certainly something we've covered on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past, that being a Stendhal syndrome or Jerusalem syndrome, uh-huh. the idea where when someone finally visits one of these places that means a lot to them personally, be it Jerusalem uh, be it, uh, in the case of today's episode, Mecca, or be it just a museum or to stand before a particular piece of art mm-hmm. that, uh, that carries a lot of weight with you. You enter into it with all these expectations, and then you're finally there, and it can be overwhelming. It yeah. can be mentally overwhelming and physically overwhelming to actually be there at, at this linchpin uh, of your life. Yeah, despite having lived in the world your whole life, suddenly you feel that you have connected with, uh, with again, this sense of history. Like, yeah. here's a place that, that will continue to be visited and written about, and now I'm here. Yeah. And it could be a, an historical cathedral. It could be Stonehenge. It could be a restaurant that was uh, used as a filming location for a movie you like. Uh, but whatever it is, like, this is a place that, that has value that seems to extend beyond your life. Now, of course, we've been talking about, you know, our, our favorite secular examples, museums or whatever. But I, I'd say you probably have to uh, amplify this feeling of importance uh, connected to place even more so for religious believers and mm-hmm. the sites that are sacred to their personal religious beliefs. And, of course, one of the sites that is sacred to millions of people around the world will be found in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. 
That's right. As far as sacred places go and the and the collective capital of belief that goes into attributing them as such, uh, the Haram Mosque or the Grand Mosque in Mecca is easily one of the most sacred places on earth. Uh, as one of the five pillars of Islam, every able-bodied Muslim has to embark on a pilgrimage to Mecca. And this is known as the Hajj. Right. On the way, uh, you conduct a series of rituals, including uh, the stoning of the devil in Mina. And finally, you conduct seven revolutions within the Haram mosque circling the holy kaaba building which is this essentially this this dark cube yeah. um, uh, it's featured in the the art for this episode and i'm sure everyone out there has seen uh, images of it of course if you haven't you should go look it up cuz yes. you should have this in mind this this dark stone building with the with the uh, t- tapestries draped on it versus from the quran mm-hmm. and then at one corner of the building something very special yeah the eastern exterior corner includes uh, something that is known as the Black Stone or the Al-Hajir Al-Haswad. Uh, this, uh, this, it's, this is going to be the, the object that we're talking about here. As you pass it, you touch, you touch it if you can, you kiss it if you can. If you can't reach it, you, you point at it. But uh, to touch the stone, it is said, is to enter into a contract with God. And I've seen translations that indicate that the black stone itself is the right hand of God on earth. Now, later in this episode, we're going to be exploring what the black stone might be from a geological standpoint, what its uh, its history and significance is within the religion. Uh, but I guess first, maybe we should just take a look at the, the site itself at large, the Kaaba. Yeah, the Kaaba itself is a very holy place in Islamic tradition, and it's it's uh, we're gonna in all of this as, as we do with any religion we're, we discuss, uh, you know, we're gonna sort of divide between the mythic history, the religious ideas of what this is and where it came from, as well as what we actually know from history. Uh, but according to uh, to tradition. The Kaaba was constructed by Abraham, and its four corners align with the four compass points. It's made of great blocks of granite, uh, but the uh, the holy black stone itself uh, burns with an even greater mysticism. So this black stone here, that's uh, that's that's set in this uh, in, in cement and surrounded by silver here, in, in the, again the eastern corner of the Kaaba stone. It's not a single stone, or at least it's not actually a single stone anymore. Rather, it consists of eight pieces of various size, seemingly the same rock, seemingly of the same origin, and they're cemented together, surrounded by a silver frame. And the largest fragment is said to be about the size of a date. So that's not very big. Right. Yeah. It's these things go. So sometimes you just hear about the black stone and you just imagine something larger. I must say that I always thought uh, before reading about this uh, for, for the episode today that it was a single stone. And mm-hmm. I, th- I thought it was sort of like one very large jet black stone. And the reason for that is that there are not very good pictures of it out there. That's right. Uh, so, you you know, generally this is not something that uh, people photograph very much. The photographs of it that do exist are kind of sometimes grainy or low quality or from a distance. Uh, it's just not ideal documentation conditions. but Which is crazy considering this is probably one of the most viewed objects on the planet. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's something that, you know, millions and millions of people have personally laid eyes on, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it's very hard to find a good picture of it. Um, but yeah, so what you see in most of these pictures is there is this silver, uh, it, it almost looks like a, like a, like a basin turned sideways or yeah. something. It's this silver collar, uh, that's built into the corner of the building. And then inside this silver bowl, there is just this 
dark abyss Yeah, generally is all you can see from the outside. So if I had to guess before I'd started reading uh, the research on it what this was, I would think it was like a large piece of obsidian or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, just a, a large flat black surface that is is smooth and dark and people uh, and, you know, people pass by and, and touch it and kiss it. But no, it turns out that there's actually a good bit more uh, texture going on inside, which makes identifying the geology of the uh, of the black stone uh, all the more interesting. Yeah. So the pieces that are set in the cement, they've been touched so many times. They have there's a smoothness to them. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's also worth worth noting, like these are pieces of something that was once whole, and we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, various. Authors have commented on it and tried to, you know, there are varying figures that have come out um, over the years, over the centuries, really. Westerners getting a glimpse of it, looking at it, trying to figure out how how big it is, the pieces are now and how big it might have been when it was a one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a paper by uh, Elizabeth Thompson, which we're going to refer to several times here. She was from the University of Copenhagen. She wrote a paper in uh, in Meteoritics in 1980 uh, titled New Light on the Origin of the Holy Black Stone of the Kaaba. And she uh, did some some figuring here, and she says that the, the possible original size of the stone would have been 25 by 20 by 20 centimeters or 9.8 inches by 7.8 by 7.8, which would have made... It what possibly about the size of a cantaloupe originally, a based big on cantaloupe. my rough estimate estimate here. I've uh, never measured a cantaloupe, Robert. Well, I I did some. I was at home when I was doing this portion of the notes, and I was uh-huh. like, all right, well, how big is that? Let me think. Is that what fruit does that align with? Yeah. And the best I can tell, possibly cantaloupe, uh, fruit, or um, is, Islamic uh, history ex- experts may uh, may differ on that. <laughs> now. As for the color, this is another interesting thing because again, you look at it, you just see darkness it's surrounded by silver. It's called the black stone. It's called the black stone. So, what color is it? That is actually kind of difficult to decide on as well because various accounts have described it as brownish black, or blackish brown, or reddish black, or deep reddish brown, and some accounts also speak to a coal-like uh, matrix to I, it. I think I've read that that was only one account yes. that actually said that. Yeah, well, at least one account. Yeah, then said. Coal-like matrix, but most uh, accounts point out that they're yellow spots, uh, pointed white crystals. Yeah, there's also a, 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 a possible interior that is described as gray. Yeah. So it's not just this obsidian or charcoal-like stone, but rather something that has you know flecks of other color in them. Right. There, there are these little pieces of yellow or white, and then there are also some reports. That inside the stone it is white, or that uh, like covered parts of the stone that are not exposed in the in the cemented uh, cemented paved surface are white. Mm-hmm. Another claim we should probably deal with because it does figure big into uh, scientists trying to figure out what type of rock or, or mineral this is, is that it allegedly, according to very old reports, floats in water. Yes, this is uh, this is something that comes up a time or two uh, in in the actual in the the historical record of the stone where su- supposedly this was used to authenticate it after it had been stolen and returned. And we'll get into that story in a bit. That was in like the 10th century. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that they could tell it's the stone by placing it in water and seeing it would float. Well, not many stones float, so uh, that would be a unique identifier. Yeah. But uh, I guess that that does just depend on taking that story as accurate. Right. And that's one of the that's one of the, the problems, the challenges 
the, the tantalizing aspects of this whole uh, exercise in discussing what this stone actually consists of from a scientific standpoint, because you're, you're left to draw on all these varying accounts and very limited uh, um, observational uh, data about the stone. Yeah, I mean, one of the features of the stone, so one of the things about observing the stone that you have to understand is that it is sort of the mechanics of how the the ritual at the Kaaba works. Mm-hmm. People are constantly circling this, and there, you know, there might be thousands of people in there all trying to get up to the stone to kiss it or to point at it or to touch it. Mm-hmm. And so you are not in a situation where you can sit there and look at it and take notes. Right. This is not a museum. Right. Uh, no, it might be more like in uh, the Louvre where you try to get a good look at the Mona Lisa, but there's just people cramming in from all <laughs> sides and pushing you. Uh, I mean, I, I've read reports about people trying to get a good look at the stone, and, and there, there are always reports mentioning just the crowd pushing you along, not being able to get up close to it. Or there are also guards there, and sometimes guards will push you along, move you out of the way. Uh, I, you can sort of understand why. I mean, they, they don't want to ha- have a case of crowd crush or something like that with right. all the people there. Yeah, I mean, so you, you, and then on top of all of this, you have your you, you, your sort of religious uh, expectations. You have the whole Stendhal syndrome coming into play here as you're beholding it. Now, Robert, I think you had a couple of accounts you were reading of, of people talking about visiting the Kaaba, right? Yeah, uh, I, I just... I tend to find the idea of early Westerners visiting Mecca and seeing the the Kaaba and the stone. Uh, I, I find those really fascinating, and so I just had 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 uh, mainly two here I wanted to to highlight, and there's a third one that that we end up referencing later. So the first one that, uh, that uh, to reference here: Swiss traveler and Arabic uh, speaker Johann Ludwig Burkhardt visited Mecca in 1814. So he was very much an Arabic speaker enthusiast. He was a uh, um, he converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also the guy who rediscovered the ruins of Petra, uh, which, oh, okay. if you're if you if, if you're still foggy on what Petra is, think to uh, what Indiana Jones and in the, the Last, Last Crusade. Crusade. Yeah, the, uh, is that the Treasury Building of Petra? That's uh, the, the one set in the cliff uh, yeah, wall. Yeah, the Tomb of the Grail. There, mm-hmm. or not the tomb, the pl- resting, pl- uh, the booby trap place. <laughs> yes, the booby trap place with the with the, with all the Grail stuff. Uh, in reality, of course, that is Petra, and, uh, and this uh, guy. Does not have booby traps. Does not have booby traps. No, uh, one of the 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 most notable individuals, one of my, one of my favorites to visit uh, Mecca in early times as a Westerner, is uh, Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton. He uh-huh. visited in 1853, and Burton was also allegedly uh, a convert to Islam and earlier a possible convert to Hinduism. He, he's a difficult guy to pin down. It yeah. sounds like I'm being vague here. So he spoke. 25 distinct languages, not counting dialects. Uh, he was something of a bisexual hedonist, a spy, an explorer. He was endlessly fascinated with other cultures, languages, modes of human sexuality. And he's probably – some commentators classify him more as an atheist. But uh, his ex- explorations into Hinduism and Islam are, are often referred to as conversions. Like he didn't just study them, he became them. Yeah, like that. that's kind of my my, my – read on him like here's a guy who learned all these languages and in using these languages you kind of have to change the way your brain operates and even to fake uh, like even just to if you were to assume okay someone like burton um 
they just faked Islamic belief in order to go on the Hajj. Like to fake that, you would still have to be so versed in a deep understanding of, of the culture, the rights entailed there. Like your cover would be so deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you keep it from overcoming you? I mean, in one sense, it almost uh, you almost want to say that to fully understand someone else's religion, you almost have to be able to mentally convert to it in yeah. a kind of hypothetical sense to like to try to see what it looks like from the inside. Right. And then at the same time, like Bur- Burton, again, is a fascinating character. We can't get into everything he did here, but he wrote a lot about his his travels and his ideas and his uh, his observations. And at times, too, it, it, he kind of waffles back and forth. Sometimes he sounds, you know, very much uh you know, at, at one with Islam and and, uh, and intrigued by it. Uh, other times, you st- still see some of that uh, English colonial um, mentality rising to the surface, and he sounds a bit dismissive. It, like I said, very very fascinating guy, difficult guy to to nail down. Uh, but here's a quick quote uh, from his writings about beholding the stone. He said. After thus reaching the stone, despite popular indignation testified by impatient shouts, we monopolized the use of it for at least 10 minutes. Whoa. Yeah, which is quite a lot when you see the crowd pictures, right? Whilst kissing it and rubbing hands and forehead upon it, I narrowly observed it and came away persuaded that it is an aerolite. Other travelers, including Burkhart, had thought it volcanic in origin. Right. So here we're starting to get to the question of what the stone is geologically. Uh, a lot of commentators throughout the years have assumed that it was uh, that it was lava of some kind, basalt, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But he, here's the idea that it's an aerolite, that it is a type of meteorite, a, yes. a space rock. Right. And to understand why this idea is so appealing, we have to discuss the the mythic, the religious history of the stone a little bit. So if you if you dive into Islamic tradition and Islamic belief, there is a basic kind of uh, Adamic origin story in play here. So depending on how you interpret this origin story, the Blackstone dates back to either Abraham or Adam, the first created human. Okay. So one interpretation is that Adam built the first Kaaba on Earth. And here he sat on a white uh, stone, okay, a stone that turned black with the fall of man. And the first Kaaba was then destroyed in the Great Flood, and it wasn't until later that Abraham was tasked with rebuilding it or building the first Kaaba, depending on on, on the telling. Uh-huh. Another idea here is that this was a meteorite brought to Abraham by the archangel Gabriel from the mountainside where it had fallen or that it originally was one of the stars of paradise. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons they're, they're kind of varying takes on this is because the, the black stone, as I understand it, is not actually mentioned in the Quran. It is, uh, uh, it comes from additional Islamic uh, sources and just sort of traditions. To me, that's always some of the most interesting things you find in any religion is the stuff that's not necessarily straight in the middle of the canon, but mm-hmm. but not necessarily out of the mainstream canon either. It's sort of like it comes from additional traditional material, uh, the the uh, what you might you know the metadata of the religion. Right. I, I think we've touched on this before. Discussions of of heaven, hell, and purgatory mm-hmm. in Christian and Catholic traditions, and, and where those ideas come from. Yeah. Uh, because certainly, if you're looking looking for a strict definition of those things within uh, the Old or New Testament, uh, those details are not really forthcoming. No, you get a few hints, but you're not going to find Dante in the Bible. Right. 
Now, in terms of what the stone does, I already mentioned that it's 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 considered the the right hand of God. To touch it is to enter into a contract with God, uh-huh. and there are additional powers that have been attributed to it. Oh, and I believe this comes from the writings of one uh, Heinrich von uh, Maltzen, well, who visited the, the, the Mecca as well in uh-huh. 1858, coming after the two individuals we already mentioned. Uh, yeah, supposedly. So, so von Maltzen. Um I want to be careful about citing him because he strikes me as perhaps unreliable and definitely unsympathetic. Like I, he wrote this 1865 book in uh, German called Meine Wallfahrt nach Mecca, uh, which means my pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, the book's in German. I've not found an official published translation, but using Google Translate, (laughs) I uh, did a little, uh, looking through this book and he, um, he strikes me as an sort of unsympathetic and perhaps uncomprehending outsider. Hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't use him as a, as a very reliable account of what the people on the Hajj in, in the 19th century were actually believing. But he at least claims, possibly wrongly, that the pilgrims at the time believed that it was impossible to destroy the Kaaba and that, uh, and impossible to destroy the Black Stone itself. Uh, so he, he said that, you know, they, they were attributing these miraculous powers to it. Now, I know, um, you know, within every religion, there's always going to be plenty of diversity of opinion and different ideas. But I, I know one strong tradition in Islam, probably not adhered to by all Muslims, is the idea that, you know, that, that there aren't miraculous objects, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that essentially people aren't going to do miracles for you. Objects aren't going to be miraculous. Right. But if this account of is correct, there are at least some slightly miraculous uh, properties attributed to the stone at some points in history. But then again, as I say, this guy kind of seems like a jerk and like he's maybe not understanding things correctly. Like he, he seems disgusted by the rituals. He doesn't uh, at one point he's like, I had to go and kiss the, the, the stone and he calls it the monster. Huh. So he's he's perhaps not um, looking at the stone from the perspective of a, of an outsider who's converted to uh, to Islam and is is fully uh, fully accepting any of the ideas and traditions around it. Yeah, or even just trying for the sake of understanding to get into that headspace. Right. Of what do, what does this mean to the insider, to the believer? And then as far as the future is concerned, uh, there are uh, tales that on the day of judgment, uh, it is said that the, the stone will grow eyes, mouth, and tongue, and that it will see and speak, and uh, it will witness in favor of all those who touched it with sincere hearts. Which uh, I think is wow. quite a visual. That one kind of gives me a chill bumps. The idea of the the stone sort of becoming this floating face that uh, then speaks on behalf uh, to God uh, of those who actually touched it and entered into that contract with 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 it. Not just a mouth, but a tongue. Yeah, that's good. Well, maybe we should take a break. Yeah. And then uh, when we do, we can discuss a little bit more about the uh, supposed history of this stone and then get into some of the geological ideas about what it is and where it came from. All right, we're back. So the stone, the black stone here, it, it actually predates Islam. So it was it was there when Muhammad 
the prophet came into mm-hmm. Mecca. And this is a fact that's acknowledged by Islamic tradition, not contrary to it. Right, right. right. Yeah, this is this is pretty settled as far as I, I understand it. So in Persian legend, uh, it was uh, supposedly a symbol of the planet Saturn. Uh, that was a tip that I read in uh, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and, and Fable. Now, according to Oliver C. Farrington's writings in 1900, uh, he wrote an article, the, the Worship and Folklore of Meteorites, uh, he says that the, the worship of this stone by Arabian tribes is first spoke on, spoken of by Greek writers of early times. Hmm. And, uh, the, the Kaaba definitely existed as a, as a shrine as early as 200 uh, CE. And the black stone was part of it. So this would have been, you know, a shrine that entailed, um, venerated objects devoted to different deities. Right. And among them was the black stone. Yeah. And so like having idols there, like I know part of the the uh, Islamic tradition is the idea of removing the idols from the Kaaba, right? Right. And that's exactly what happened in uh, uh, 630 CE. That's when um, when the prophet entered Mecca, purged the Kaaba of idols, reportedly uh, destroying something like 360 idols. Uh, but as often the, is the case with holy places in history, the Kaaba and the stone retained their sacred aspects. We see this in Islamic history all the time as well, such as the, the function of the Greek Parthenon as a mosque during Ottoman uh, occupation. Mm-hmm. This was something I really didn't know a lot of uh, a lot about until recently when I attended a, a talk at uh, at Emory University. Wow. Uh, how they, you had the you had it, it was converted into a mosque, the Parthenon, and then uh, when the Parthenon was was partially destroyed, uh, you had sort of the gutted Parthenon, and in the middle they had this uh, this uh, this kind of cubicle mosque that actually reminds one a little bit of the the Kaaba. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, now. There was a lot of turmoil even during Muhammad's life. Muhammad lived uh, 570 through 632, and uh, the Kaaba was was burnt during this time, and this may have caused some of the fragmentation that we see. Uh, that's the thing. We don't know exactly when this fragmentation of the of the stone occurred. Yeah, this history of the, uh, the, the stone as an object becoming many objects does seem kind of fuzzy. Like there's this general idea that it was once a single stone or fewer number of stones and then broke into smaller parts. And then now there are apparently fewer visible pebbles in the stone than there were, say, in the 19th century. Right. And one of the ideas here is that the... The pieces could either have been removed or lost, or they could still be there. We just can't see them all that well because, A, we can't really see the, the stone uh, fragments all that well anyway, or they might be partially obscured by the by the cement and the silver and, and repeated uh, attempts to, you know, hold everything together. Right. So what were the circumstances under which it was burned? So this was during the civil war between the Caliph uh, Abd al-Malik and uh, Ibn Zurbar, who uh, controlled Mecca at the time, uh, the Kaaba was set on fire. This would have been 683. And report, by some accounts, the black stone broke into three pieces and then was reassembled with silver. So that's a that's a, an opportunity, let's say, for the, the stone to have been broken, certainly. Um, now, another opportunity that comes up is in 930. And that's when uh, Mecca was sacked by the Carmathians, led by Abu Ter al-Janabi. 
who uh, apparently used the Hajj as an excuse uh, to, to demand entry into the city mm-hmm. uh, with his troops. Now, a number of you are probably wondering, well, who are the Karmathians? Uh, they were a, an heretical sect of Islam that considered the, the Quran allegory. They refuted various rites and entailed a mix of uh, uh, of, uh, of of Islamic and Persian mysticism. They sacked and looted Mecca. They desecrated holy sites. They massacred pilgrims around the Kaaba and removed the black stone and took it out of Mecca, apparently uh, in hopes of moving the destination of the Hajj to Hajar in what we now call uh, Bahrain. So they were trying to get everybody to come to them from now on. That that is the that that is how I understand it. Yeah, based on the, the material I, I was reading. Um this ended up not working <laughs> yeah. uh, all that well. And uh, I mean, it's worth it's also worth noting here that, of course, history is written by the victors. So, you know, to what extent is some of this colored by the fact that the that even though the Carmathians were very powerful at the time, mm-hmm. they ended up fading into history. Right. So. They tried to change the the point of the Hajj. didn't work. The Blackstone is uh, returned to Mecca around 951 or 952, but for a hefty ransom fee. Well, now, hold on a second. How do you know it's really the stone when you return it? Well, you got to test its buoyancy, right? You've got to see if it floats in water, and apparently it did. So that's where this idea comes from, right, in the right. 10th century, that, that this was returned. And one thing that was known about the stone somehow was that it would float in water. Yes, and uh, some accounts indicate that it was returned and in, in, uh, shattered into pieces. So whether it was whether it was shattered uh, during extraction or during the return, that's kind of you know up in the air. Now there's a an additional uh, account that is sometimes brought up as a as a possible uh, incident in which it was shattered, and that's around 1050. The Caliph Al Hakim Bayamir Allah allegedly sent an agent to smash the stone. But this only inflicted slight damage, and uh, the agent was killed on the spot. Who's to say? Uh, I only found one account uh, where someone was speculating on the nature of the stone who thought that this might have been an incident that could have resulted in serious damage. Mm -hmm. And the details on these accounts were from uh, Mecca, a literary history of the Muslim Holy Land by Francis E. Peters. So if any of these didn't do the trick, though, there was also a 1626 flood that toppled three of the Kaaba walls. So that also could have contributed to the fracturing of the black stone. Right. So if you have a you have an object that is susceptible to damage and it plays such a vital role for such a long period of time. Yeah. Um, it's 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 there's there's a high possibility it's going to result in damage. You know, one of the other things we should mention is that this is a stone that you can quite well expect to be undergoing a certain amount of wear and tear. Oh, yeah. With millions of people from around the world coming to this stone and trying to touch it and kiss it. Um, I mean, there is there's all there's all manner of which, uh, <laughs> you know, handling of things leads to their deterioration over time. Even if you think you're being gentle, I mean, there's a reason museums don't let you touch stuff. Right. Like what if uh, what if the, the statue of David, what if everyone got to touch David? Yeah. Um, you know, that would that would erode the statue. Uh, over time, and, cer- and certainly uh, accounts of the black stone indicate that there is a certain amount of erosion that has taken place—a smoothing of the stones from all of that, all of those human touches, all of those kisses, all. Of
all of that, uh, you know, the, the oil from uh, from human skin. Yeah, but one can imagine that I don't know all, all manner of various handling, touching, and stuff like that could also maybe have contributed to fracturing. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. have to be a highly destructive event. Uh, even even gentle caresses over the centuries can add up. Yeah, indeed. All right, and that basically brings us up to modern times. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to discuss the possible scientific origins of the stone. What is it? Where did it come from? And how um, how limited are we in our ability to answer that question? All right, we're back. So we're going to be talking about uh, scientific inquiry into the geologic nature of the black stone of the Kaaba. Uh, what what kind of rock is it? Yeah. Did it come from space? Did it come from Earth? What's it made of? And there's one thing we should note at the outset here, which is that it is hard to know the answer to this question because the rock has not been removed to a scientific lab right. where you can do tests on it. This is one of these strange situations where people are trying to do science from a distance, Mm -hmm. sort of through the intermediary of people's subjective accounts. Right. Yeah. Scientists have not examined the black stone. And really, scientists are probably not going to get to analyze the black stone at any point in the foreseeable future. Uh like I kind of have to think of sci-fi scenarios in which the black stone could possibly be analyzed. It's uh it's it's. They're simply like, why would you do it? Why would you allow it? Uh, why, why would you submit it for scientific analysis? Mm-hmm. There, because uh, there's really nothing quite like the black stone in any other religious tradition that I can think of. Like, I mean, yeah, th- an object that is so central, like literally central uh, to the, the belief system. Uh, like the closest thing I can think of in Christian and specifically Catholic traditions is the Shroud of Turin. Mm-hmm. But even that is not. I, you know, I would not say the Shroud of Turin is an article of faith or, or, um, you know, in any way associated with a pillar of Christianity. Yeah, there are definitely in other religions, uh, holy objects, holy sites, but I feel like nothing as central as this and right. as, as hard to get at. Yeah, cause, uh, cause, or as hard to get at in a, in a scrutinizing way. Obviously, it's not hard to get at just in general in that, like we said, millions of people go and touch and look at this thing, but you can't remove it. You can't take it away with you and you can't spend some time scrutinizing it. Right. So we end up with, with generally intellectuals, geologists looking at, at pictures such as they are, looking at sketches, analyzing descriptions of it, mm-hmm. and then using their knowledge of material sciences to try and figure out what it could be. Which can be very interesting. So uh, one of the standard things, this is probably not a very interesting hypothesis, but for you know years people have said, well, it's probably some kind of lava or basalt, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Generally now, people don't think that's the answer. Right. Uh, so another one of the main theories that's been offered over the years is that the Blackstone is meteoritic yes. in origin, that it came from space. And, uh, you know, it, it makes sense, right? Because this this aligns with uh, the cosmic origins that are presented in the mythic history mm-hmm. as a gift of a primordial god. What better origin than outer space, right? And there's also a, a long history of two important factors here. One, 
the worship or at least veneration of meteorites and to the use of uh, meteor, mete- meteoric iron. Now, I think a lot of Muslims would probably want to emphasize the distinction that the Kaaba stone is not something that is worshipped, Correct. but yeah. is a, a more like symbolic object that is uh, that is playing a role in what they would describe as their relationship with God. But even if the object is not itself a point of worship, you can easily see how uh, objects that fall from space would take on some kind of sacred or venerable dimension. Yeah, like one cool example of this is that uh, Native Americans from the Confederated Tribes of the the Grand uh, Ronde community of Oregon continue to make annual uh, ceremonial visits to the famous uh, Willamette meteorite at uh, the American Museum of Natural History. Oh, back to that. Yeah, so while scientists believe the rock is the the iron core of a shattered planet, uh, the uh, Clackamas Tribes uh, people knew it as uh, Tamanowas, a representative of the sky people and a source of healing. And cleansing. I mean, if you look at a picture of this meteorite, and you should, mm-hmm. yeah, it looks like something that was sent by the gods. Of course it does. Th- this thing looks insane. It, uh, it's got these caverns in it. Robert, do you know what it looks like? I've seen pictures, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it looks like you get a sense of topography, like it's a maze mm-hmm. uh, or even like a, li- a former living thing. There are like coral aspects to it. Yes, uh, it, it looks like a large piece of iron, uh, w- parts of which have come alive and slithered away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the, the iron is interesting, too, because that comes back to this uh, this use of uh, meteoric uh, iron. Mm-hmm. So before mining technology allowed for the ready harvesting of iron ore, one of the few sources of this durable metal was the was bits of it that plummeted from the sky in the form of, uh, of meteorites. Uh, the ancient Egyptians knew about it. They dubbed it uh, black copper. Oh, that's a cool name. It is. It's very, very, very cool. Uh, and... Uh, and, you know, it's generally spread then across vast distances. You're going to find little bits of it here and there. So right. it was a, a rare commodity. You could you, not. You out- cannot arm an army with it. Correct. You could. Yeah. You couldn't make enough swords for an army, but you could make if you, you know, scratch, scratch enough of it together, you could make a single sword and it would have, you know, obviously it would have holy or at least, uh, um, you know, ceremonial significance. Mm-hmm. Um so this this relegated most uh, meteoric iron creations to the realm of of you know decorative or uh, significance or ceremony. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, in Islamic history, the seventh century uh, caliphs were said to have brandished swords made from uh, meteoric iron. While such iconic figures as Attila the Hun and Tamerlane reportedly wielded uh, other cosmic blades against their enemies. And, you know, also there are uh, bowls, plows, and stirrups that have been observed to have been made from it as well. So maybe sometimes you just ended up making what you needed out of the iron. But for the most part, it tended to take on a, a sacred significance. Weapons from space. Yeah. That should be a whole episode on its own sometime. Could we, is there enough there? Could we do it? Weapons from space? I mean, has anybody ever tried to make like a, like a, uh, I don't, oh, what do you call it? A morning star? I don't know. I, why would you make a morning star out of it when you could make a sword? Terry Pratchett, by the way, uh, before he died, I believe, had uh, obtained a sword made from meteoric iron. No, what I meant was make a morning star with a moon rock. Oh. Yeah. I like the idea. Yeah. Who does that? I mean, if you have to be uh, brained to death with a, a medieval uh, blunt weapon, why not? why not moon rock? Yeah. Makes it a little special. 
So it's easy to fall into this thinking. All right, it's a meteorite. Maybe it's uh, it's 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 meteoric iron, and that's why all this uh, this uh, the, the the significance is given to it. However, as Thompson points out, no, paper, we mentioned her earlier. We mentioned her earlier. Yeah, yeah, Elizabeth Thompson. Yes, as she points out. This isn't necessarily a slam dunk theory. An iron meteorite, uh, she wrote, would not break into fragments, nor would it float in water because it is a piece of iron. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but that doesn't rule out all meteorites. There's also the idea that it's a stony meteorite. But would a stony meteorite float in water? Uh, would it be able to withstand uh, centuries of human erosion? Um, probably not. Yeah, so here I think we should actually get into a few of the papers that have been yes. published on this subject. Uh, and th- the first w- big one that tried to get at the, uh, after, after the meteorite theory had been dominant for a long time mm-hmm. in the 20th century, the first one that I think really tried to, to dig in and, and look at the descriptions and figure out what it would, what it could be was in 1974 in the uh, journal Meteoritics. And so they're looking at it and saying, okay, pretty much everybody thinks this thing's a meteorite. Are they on to something or are they wrong? And this was by uh, Robert Dietz and John McCone. And in this paper, uh, Dietz and McCone argued that the Kaaba stone, the black stone, is probably not a meteorite, but an agate. Mm-hmm. So why do they get to agate? Well, let's follow them through their reasoning. So first of all, they say the fact that it appears to have been cracked and fractured, as you mentioned earlier, Robert, sort of rules out the possibility that it's a nickel iron meteorite. You, you've seen these types of meteorites before that are that are essentially like a big metal sponge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you have tryptophobia, these things really should set you off with these patterns of holes. Uh, but a nickel iron meteorite, uh, it's not brittle like most earth rocks. It's more like a piece of metal. And thus, we would not expect to see a meteorite like this with a crack or cracked into multiple pieces. But they say, OK, well, maybe it could be a stony meteorite. This is a different kind of meteorite. It's more like earth rocks. And from descriptions, the stone, they say, is, quote, hummocky and muscled. Hmm. So what does this mean and why is it relevant? Well, hummocky, that's not just like a cute British word or something, though. It does kind of sound like, you know, Lord Hummocky Twizzleton. <laughs> I was thinking it sounds like a great uh, description for for a wine. So I go, well, yeah. what, what, do you, what do you think of this particular wine's bouquet? Well, it's, it's, it's hummocky and, and muscled. Mm-hmm. Well-muscled wine. Yeah. With notes of elderberry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so hummocky actually means something in geology. It means highly uneven or irregular in surface. So they say, you know, literally millions of people have touched this thing over the centuries, and yet they haven't worn away these apparent irregular features of the surface of the stone. So for that to be the case, the authors suggest that the stone needs to have a pretty good Mohs scale rating, uh, which they estimate should be a minimum of a seven. So you know about the Mohs scale, right? That's that's how Mo you answer from, from Simpsons. No, M O H, the Mohs scale, geological hardness scale. It's how you rate how hard is it. You want to know how hard it is, you give a Mohs scale rating. Um, and a 10 on the Mohs scale is a diamond. That's super hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, I think talc is like a 1 or a 2. Okay. A 7 is quartz. So they think uh, for this thing to have withstood all of the touching and kissing over the years and still have this uneven, hummocky surface, it needs to be at least a 7 on the Mohs scale. So that gives them a, one clue to work with. 
Another conclusion from the descriptions is that the black stone supposedly has this highly reflective, almost mirror-like polish. You know, you can uh, you can put your makeup on in it. I would advise against doing that. No, I, I don't know. People probably would not have the patience for that. Uh, no, and you probably actually couldn't. It's, uh, it's, but they say that it is almost mirror like. It's highly reflective. Um, and they claim that this indicates the stone must be, uh, aphanitic and monomineralic. Oh God, more terminology. So what does that mean? Aphanitic is a ge- geology term that means very fine grained minerals. So aphanitic rocks are those where you can't see the individual mineral crystals with the naked eye. And this usually happens in igneous rocks, you know, fire formed rocks that are formed uh, from molten rock cooling and solidifying pretty quickly. You know, that often happens near the surface. One common example would be basalt. Uh, the other word was monomineralic. That means exactly what it sounds like. Rocks that are made of just one type of mineral. If the rock is aphanitic and monomineralic, they think it's more likely that it could be polished down to this reflective surface by people touching it over the years. Already, though, I think we should note this is something we, we sort of warned about earlier, the awkwardness of doing science this way, because listen to what's going on. They're having to work from secondhand descriptions of the features of the stone without examining it themselves. So there's just a lot of room for problems to creep into this kind of analysis. So we should definitely take their conclusions with uh, a large grain, a uh, large crystal grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, to continue... How about the color of the stone? Can that tell us anything about it? Well, their description says, you know, it's called the black stone. The stone's black, maybe even jet black. Okay. Uh, now, they don't know whether black is the original color of the stone or whether it has turned black through handling. Because, again, the mythic idea here is that it was originally white and human sin has turned it black or mostly black. And this, this on top of the, the, the differing opinions of just how black it actually is now. Right. You referenced earlier. Yeah. And so back when this article was first published, the authors managed to get in contact with the uh, keeper of the Kaaba, who in turn got a Muslim scholar named Muhammad Alwi, uh, to offer a sort of uh, concurrently published reply that gives some theological and historical context to their article. And, uh, and this scholar uh, had the cl- among his claims, I guess, is the idea that the stone was originally white. He, he, he goes with that idea. And he says various descriptions have called it, quote, whiter than snow, as white as silver, or charmingly, as white as yogurt. Oh, okay. And I guess they, what they have in mind is not that gray purple Trix yogurt that. Oh, goodness. I forgot about Trix yogurt. Trix yogurt. Yeah. Yogurt in name only. <laughs> Why would you make gray yogurt? That is a crime against nature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fruit needs to stay on the bottom uh-huh. or is added after the fact. It should it should not come pre-mixed. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. Tricks tricks are for kids, I guess. Anyway, one explanation for the change in color, if in fact what happened is that it was originally white and it darkened over time, is that whenever the pieces of the stone become loosened or dislodged from the inset over the years, you know, they start to come out of the cement, they were reattached with this kind of putty or cement made by kneading together wax, musk, and ambergris. Ah. 
From uh, whales. Yeah. yeah. And so exposure to this putty is said to have turned the stones black over the time, over time. And, uh, supposedly the historian, uh, Ibn Nafi al-Khazai, while writing a history of the Kaaba, got to see the stone inset completely exposed while the Kaaba was being rebuilt. So out of the frame where it's usually kept. And he reported that the part of the stone usually kept covered by the wall, the part that's usually hidden, is white. Huh. So if he's correct about that, um, then it's not just a jet black stone, but a white stone that is either black on one part that's exposed or has turned black over time due to possibly multiple factors. But in any case, if the stone were originally black, it could be a type of stony meteorite, such as chondrite. Chondrite is a stony meteorite. Um, and remember that the stony meteorite's different from that, that solid metal sponge meteorite, the iron nickel meteorite. But then again, a chondrite meteorite probably would not have been able to maintain its, quote, hummocky character with all those years of rubbing. So you, you put a stony meteorite in there, people touch it for a thousand years, mm-hmm. it would get ground down. And the authors also say that a chondrite meteorite probably would not be described as having a mirror-like reflective polish. Now, here's one other option. How about a Howardite meteorite? Hmm. Good name again. Um, Howardites, uh, the authors don't think it's going to be that because Howardites are very rare. They think it's an unlikely candidate. Also, Howardite tends to be light colored and this would not fit in with an originally black cobblestone. Uh, but then it might fit if the original stories of original whiteness are true. Uh, so a little bit more. Some legends about the stone point to the possibility of it being a sapphire or an amethyst, which is interesting. Uh, but the authors think neither of those minerals really fit. Sapphires are not big enough to be, you know, the date sized pebbles we see now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and amethysts are t- they quote they say, quote, too readily cleaved. I'm not quite sure I understand why that would disqualify it. Maybe they're saying that it doesn't meet the hardness characteristics. It just come apart. Yeah, because you gotta have to have a sweet spot here between something that is hard enough to withstand all that human erosion, but mm-hmm. also can could be have shattered. been fractured. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know. It sounds like what you would want is something that is readily cleaved, but is not ground down by touching. Yeah. Maybe they mean it would have just, it, it just is too fragile. I don't maybe. Know. Yeah, it could be. Uh, so what do they conclude? Well, the authors suggest the simplest explanation would be to think of visually attractive stones that are somewhat unusual, but also not things that are considered precious gems. So they say obsidian might fit, but they say it's too brittle and delicate to have survived the years of handling and abuse that the Kaaba stone has. And in the end, they settle on agate. They think agate is the most likely candidate, especially black agate. Why? Well, it's monomineralic. Uh, it's hard, a Mohs scale seven. It's tough and it's fine grained, meaning uh, aphanitic, that fun word from earlier. So Agate, when polished by years of rubbing, should also show a fairly reflective surface, you know, kind of mirror-like. One last thing that they cite in their favor, they cite an anonymous Arab geologist who went to view the stone for himself while he was on the Hajj. And the scholar said that he observed what's called diffusion banding within the Kaaba stone. Uh, If you've ever looked inside a cross section of an agate, you see these things that are kind of like tree rings. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, And these these are the the bands, diffusion banding. And the authors claim that this would be consistent with the stone being an agate. Um, 
One note is they seem absolutely unconcerned with or unaware of the idea that the stone maybe should float. <laughs> yes. And uh, that's that's something that Elizabeth Thompson mm-hmm. commented on uh, when in her paper, which right. came afterwards. She argued that, that this choice, uh, the agate, wouldn't uh, wouldn't float. And it also lacked a cosmic origin story. Now, now, personally, I think that last bit is especially is short-sighted because I think human history shows us that an object or place need not be verifiably heaven-touched to resonate with, with cosmic potency. Yeah, I, I'm not very convinced by that either. I, yeah. mean, I, I don't see why you couldn't conclude that a regular earth rock was a supernatural gift from heaven. Yeah. Like it doesn't literally have to come from space for people to venerate it as a a gift from heaven. Yeah. Cause I mean, essentially you could boil it down to two different ways of looking at this stone and it's in its origin. Either it was a a really cool looking stone that someone came across and, and it kind of went from there Mm -hmm. or it was a perfectly normal stone but there was enough capital wolf belief that was put into it, mm-hmm. be it something situational or just the right people saying this is this is it. This is tied to to some something larger than ourselves. I mean, you can just look around your house and you can find examples of two of those things in action. Right. <laughs> um, I have I, I'm on, on my desk right now. I have just a normal like gravel rock, I don't know, probably it came from from asphalt or something. Mm. But my son brought it to me one day and said and, to, and wanted me to keep it because it was special. It's not special. It doesn't look special at all. But the fact that he gave Did it to me makes that? it so. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I took it and for the life of me, I can't quite get rid of it uh-huh. because because I have this small attachment to it. Right. And likewise, we all have various doodads around where, the, where we have you know, be it a stone or some minor decoration where we just it just looks too interesting to get rid of. Well, I think maybe now we should uh, go to the the next paper, the one we've been talking about several times already, that of uh, Elizabeth Thompson, who has a different theory about where this stone comes from. And her, her theory is an interesting hybrid, I think, or, or I guess we should say it's a hypothesis. It's an interesting hybrid mm-hmm. of the meteoric uh, or the meteoritic origin story and uh, and dealing with some of the problems with that. Right. So as as you can tell by that that earlier criticism she had, she puts a lot of stock in the cosmic origin aspect that, uh-huh. that, that this is somehow connected to to, to a meteorite. Uh, however, it need not be an actual meteorite. According to her theory, it could be uh, what is known as impactite glass. Hmm. So I've attached uh, for Robert for you to look at here a couple of pictures of uh of wabar impactite glass so cool looking yeah i these, wish i had some of this these look these look super cool yeah and the, and there are there are examples as well maybe we'll try to include some links to these images uh, on the landing page for this episode of stufftoblowyourmind.com um because they are kind of how would you describe them but, i i actually i was trying to think of the best way to put this they don't look like normal rocks they do look again sort of like the iron meteorite they look like something that could plausibly have come from a supernatural realm they look sort of like a fistful of cottage cheese was wrapped up in a bunch of seaweed uh in a wad of seaweed and then turned into stone by yeah. a witch that sounds about right yeah yeah uh Essentially, the idea here, uh, I'll get into it more, but imagine what happens when a meteorite uh, impact occurs in a sandy region. All right. Okay. So there's silica sand. Mm -hmm. And what happens when sand is heated up? 
turns to glass. Yeah. So Thompson points to the meteorite impact craters of a region known as uh, Wabar. This is 684 miles or 1,100 uh, kilometers from Mecca, so it's reasonably close. It's in the Rubalkali Desert. Yeah. And uh, here, several iron meteorites have turned up, but the bedrock here is pure, pale sandstone composed mostly of quartz. Uh, crater walls are composed of block glass that are formed from fused silica and infused with billions of uh, spherules of uh, of nickel and iron. So this is impactite glass. Yeah, and it occurs in uh, in, in what they call porous bombs. <laughs> uh, so and often with a white interior and a glossy black shell, sometimes as black droplets. So she theorizes that the observed yellow-white specks in the stone are remnants of glass and or sandstone, and that the hardness of the glass would make it resistant to all of that human erosion. Meanwhile, the porous nature of the glass would make would would make it float. Hmm. And that the black color would be due to the nickeliferous iron spherules captured from an explosion of nickel and iron. And she adds that these qualities match up with other examples of Wabar glass, as well as reports of meteorites used as memorials to the prophet. Now, I think this is a really interesting theory. Uh, I might be sort of favoring it just because I love the pictures of this impact glass so much. It looks really cool. It looks so cool. I want this to be the answer. Yes, it, it it's it very much matches up with that classification of. I mean, you can imagine somebody coming across this stone and realizing this looks really cool. Mm-hmm. What's the story of this? Uh, it's also I'm I'm persuaded by not persuaded. I shouldn't say that. I'm I'm unfairly biased by this being a very geologically cool origin story mm-hmm. that an object from the heavens came down and literally melted the earth yes. to form. Form these these objects that uh, later become objects of reverence. One thing that's uh, probably not necessarily uh, I don't know an influence, but just a very interesting legendary parallel is the idea of the destruction of the city of Iram of the Pillars by fire from heaven. Yeah, I've seen this referred to as the Atlantis of the Sands. Yeah, Iram. It, yeah. Because it's a, you know, it's a lost city. And uh, I think it's also called, is it Ubar? Is that right? I'm not sure. I've seen it uh, referred to as either Iram with an I or Aram with an A, uh, at least in the uh, the copy of the Quran that I was looking at. Because it is mentioned in the Quran, uh, chapter 89, verse 6 to 14. It reads, Hast thou not considered how thy Lord dealt with Ad of Aram, having lofty buildings, the like of which are not created in the land, and of Thamud, who hewed out rocks in the valley, and the Pharaoh, the Lord of hosts, who exceeded limits in the cities and made great mischief therein? So thy Lord poured on them a portion of chastisement. Surely thy Lord is watchful. Whoa. Yeah. All right. So Thompson has made uh, an interesting uh uh, speculation here that, that it could be this impact type glass. But there was another scientific paper on it, uh, by H.J. Axon published in, uh, the Journal of Material Science Letters in 1982 called The Blackstone of Kaaba Suggestions as to Its Constitution. And he looks at the research we've already talked about and tries to draw some conclusions from it, critique it, and then offer some ideas of his own. So uh, he reacts to to that original discussion of Dietz and McCone, who said it was an agate. 
And so he says, okay, their reasoning rests on some assumptions that the stone is jet black, that it's mirror-like in reflective power, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's got these apparent banded regions that their, that their friend, the geologist saw when he went and visited it, uh, that they attribute to diffusion banding. So it makes them think agate. On this basis, they say uh, that it's not a stony meteorite of the chondrite variety uh, because those crumble too easily. And the word here is friable. They're too easily friable. Uh, so they're looking for something that's aphanitic and monomineralic. You remember that. Uh, and they conclude that it's agate. But Axon claims that uh, even though agate is readily available in the Middle East, he thinks the authors overlooked the importance of the fact that the stone is a collection of pebble-like fragments cemented together rather than a single stone with a well-preserved hummocky surface. So he, he thinks that they may be sort of... Um, mistaking the the textured appearance of this cemented together piece of pavement essentially mm-hmm. for the surface of what a stone itself should look like. Oh, okay. And in defense of stony meteorites, he says, okay, chondrites, those are stony meteorites. They actually vary a whole lot in exactly how crumbly they are. You know, some of them might be more crumbly than others, how friable they are. Also, Axon says, you know, chondrites that have been subjected to what he calls extraterrestrial shock, which is uh, also the medical condition induced by watching the movie Mac and Me. (laughs) He says they, quote, tend to be compacted and contain dark veins, which might be mistaken for banding under unfavorable conditions of observation. So he says, you know, if you're just coming up at this thing in the middle of the day and you're trying to peek in at it, uh, you might mistake these these veins that we would often see in certain types of chondrites for the kind of banding you'd see in an agate. So that's in defense of it being a meteorite. On the other hand, against the chondrite hypothesis, Axon says uh, it's common for chondrites to have these metallic iron-nickel pieces distributed evenly throughout, which should be obvious when you look at this thing. Uh, this is something that people would have observed about it. On the other hand, he says uh, that metal can disappear by way of oxidation, i.e. rusting, if exposed to your earth weather for long periods of time. So it may, maybe it's just rusting. But if this were the case, you'd expect to see rust. You'd expect to see like a reddish hue well, on the stone. Now, that being said, there some accounts have said brownish or reddish. Yeah. So. And here we get back to the yeah. problem with like combining all these different accounts that seem to differ from one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to know which one to go on if you're trying to draw the best conclusions. Uh, but yeah, I have seen that too. Some people say reddish brown, others say black. So that's a little confusing. Um, but also he says we would expect to see in a chondrite, quote, light colored chondrules of silicate. So what is that? Well, the chondrules are these visually striking, colorful, spherical minerals that are found in some meteorites. You should look this up. Go Google search chondrules. They they have a distinctive appearance, and people would probably have noticed and reported them if they'd been present in the stone because they're, they're these, like, colored spheres. You, you would see them. So Axon says, okay, okay, what about a carbonaceous meteorite? 
These are rare chondrites that are low in density. They're free of obvious medical, medical, metal particles. <laughs> and sometimes they don't have these big chondrules that are really obvious. Uh, but these are rare meteorites. They're not a major candidate. And Axon thinks, yeah, maybe we should just keep them in the back of the mind. You know, in, in, we've had a two, two different authors here discuss like rarity being yeah. an issue. I keep thinking though, we're talking about a rare stone, like yeah. in no in, in in no classification. It's not is like the black stone like thirty five of these. Yeah. yeah, like this is a, a singular stone. So, can we really count out the possibility of rare meteorites? Well, I mean, it just it lowers the probability that anybody in history would have found one That's of true. these things, yeah. but it maybe increases the probability that if they had found it, they would have kept it and revered it. Yeah. Um, so you're just sort of like uh, adjusting the selection dials in, <laughs> in two different ways. Um, what, what about Thompson's hypothesis? He comes to that, you know, that it's this fused silica glass. There's an impact event in the sand in the desert. A bunch of sand gets melted along with some pieces of the meteorite into these crazy wads of spinach and cottage cheese uh, turned into stone. Well, Thompson, obviously, as we said, likes this hypothesis because it means the stone could feasibly float. And there are those stories from the past of it floating in brine or water or even concentrated brine. Mm -hmm. And this would uh, this would also explain the white stone inside the black stone. Um, But Axon says it's hard to see how a large piece of this impactite glass would form the smooth pebble shapes that are described by observers. Again, back to what people say, you see these smooth pebbles, you know, no bigger than a date in in the cement. If you look at these things, Axon says, if the blackstone fragments really are this fused silica glass from an impact, they shouldn't look like these smooth pebbles. They should uh, they, they should have different surface features, including things like bubbles and vesicles. Mm-hmm. Um and so one last thought he offers is, you know, perhaps the original body was what he calls a concretation of pebbles. And so this originally this original stone, when when it fractured, what it was was a bunch of pebbles stuck together and it was just the pebbles coming off. Huh. If that makes any sense. So if you imagine the original stone was not like a solid stone that broke into pieces and then the pieces got smoothed down. What if it was a solid stone that was more like a cluster of grapes in okay. shape? And he cites uh, one example of a piece of lunar material that had been hit by a shock meteorite bombardment that actually showed this type of this shape, that it looked sort of like a cluster of grapes. And so that's one possibility in his mind. But ultimately, he concludes, you know what? We don't know. And uh, even though we've got better scientific knowledge to work with, we really need better access if we're going to make a conclusion, just better access to the primary data. We'd have to be able to look at this thing closely and make some measurements. Yeah, I really like that point that he made in the paper saying that you know, even at the time, what was this, 82, that the material sciences had advanced so much, uh, in, even from some of the previous studies in the prior decades. Uh-huh. And yet our information about the black stone itself has remained relatively the same. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. you know, a few more subjective uh, observations of what it consists of. Yeah. But 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 ultimately no new information, certainly no scientific, uh, scientifically uh, analytic information. Yeah, that that is a good point. And I think one thing that I come away from this discussion with is um 
This attempt to investigate the material or geological character of of the Blackstone strikes me as kind of similar to our episode from a couple of years ago, or I guess, yeah, almost a couple year and a half ago, maybe mm-hmm. on the Will of the Wisp. Uh, in the same way, it encapsulates some of the difficulties of doing what you might call secondhand science. In both cases, you've got scientists trying to apply their knowledge of natural phenomena to match this wide range of disparate subjective reports. Uh, now, I think the reports of the, the, the Blackstone of the Kaaba are much more substantive than those of the Will of the Wisp. Obviously, in the case of the Black Stone, it actually exists, and we know for a fact that it actually exists. It's not something that maybe people are just imagining. We know millions of people see it all the time. It's not an ephemeral phenomenon. It's like a thing that's there. It's widely observed. And we know that it's one unified phenomenon and not like different phenomena being reported under the same name. So these are all not the case for the Will of the Wisp. But like the Will of the Wisp, we have to make judgments based on a host of variable descriptions and characteristics. What color is it? Different reports say different things. Are there flecks of other colors within it? What color was it originally? Does it float in water? How reflective is it? Even in the cases where there's only one major answer to these, sometimes we don't know if we should trust that answer. Or just throw out the question entirely. Yeah. You know? like, does it float in water? Our, our evidence that this stone floats in water is some report from a thousand years ago. Yeah. Like, should we give it give that more weight than the question, well, could it conceivably you know, spout a mouth and start talking, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, at what point you just cut off and say, all right, we're only going to we're only going to look at these three qualities. Uh, what class of meteorite most commonly sprouts a tongue? Ooh, I can't I I, I can't think think of one offhand. We'll have to uh, we'll, we'll have to have to have to reach out to our audience on that one. Maybe the the Inkarai meteorites. Yeah, well, I mean, even if you do make a distinction between um you know, uh, subjective religious beliefs and just subjective direct observational reports, even the direct observational reports, they're giving us all this conflicting info mm-hmm. and and none of it's very solid. Like you, you're, you're not taking a measurement of it. You're just saying, like, yeah, here's generally what I saw. Yeah. But then there's one other interesting parallel. At least it seemed interesting to me uh, here in, in talking about a religious object is that I, I think it's kind of funny how the practice of trying to do a geological or material science analysis on the black stone based on these subjective descriptions almost reminds me of something that often happens in our faith traditions, which is the process of trying to draw clarity of theology from just what amounts to a large collection of stories. You know, so when theologians of almost any religion try to come up with the systematic theology of that religion, the systematic theology being here are our beliefs, here are the mm-hmm. rules, here's what happens in the metaphysics of our religion, essentially the science of the religion. Right. Uh, they often have to draw these conclusions based on sources that are not originally written to be clear in systematic descriptions of rules and theological principles, but they're based on stories. 
And so you have to sift through the stories to try to pull out this clear, systematic understanding of it all. Anyway, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. No, no, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. It has a, yeah, the idea of, of taking all of these either tales or these accounts and trying to build something concrete out of it. Or, or just to say, what does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. What is the, what is the shape of this or indeed what is the meaning of this? Well, what am I supposed to take home from this? Right. But, uh, it's, but again, still, it's fascinating to to look at these different scientific uh, uh, hypotheses about the Black Stone. It's mm-hmm. also interesting just to look at the the, the history and, um, and and mythology surrounding it, and try and figure out what that means as well. It's uh, right. it's really an enigma on several different levels, and I hope that we've been able to to relate some of that uh, to you today. And on that note, uh, hey, we're thinking about doing more uh, episodes in this series, looking at sacred places or objects. So you know, we should throw out the question, what sacred objects or places would you like us to cover in the future? We already have a few ideas kicking around. Yeah, obviously, especially if there is some interesting scientific angle oh, that yes, can be yes. discussed about it. Uh, one of the things that I might want to talk about in the future is uh, is the Ganges. Oh, yes, that's a good one. Uh uh, more of a an object than a place that comes to my mind is, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like nothing we've gone after before. <laughs> so, so we should at least consider it. Uh-huh. But I'm sure there are some other examples out there that our listeners can think of, and certainly you can get in touch with us about those. And finally, you know, we've covered Islamic history, Islamic myth, Islamic scientific uh, contributions on the show before and will again. And, uh, you know, it's all part of our shared global culture. And at the same time, we recognize that discussions of Islamic culture continue to resonate with particular potency in today's political climate. So we encourage everyone out there to expand their understanding of what it means to be a Muslim in today's society. And as a starting point, we just wanted to highlight two organizations you might want to check out. First off, there's uh, Muslims for Progressive Values at www.mpvusa.org. This is a um, a faith-based grassroots international human rights organi- organization that embodies and uh, advocates for the traditional Quranic values of social justice and equality for all in the 21st century. So they champion such values as separation of religious and state authorities, freedom of speech, universal human rights, and gender equality. Mm-hmm. And another group is the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity, and that's at uh, MuslimAlliance.org. Uh, so they work to support, empower, and connect LGBTQ Muslims. They seek to challenge root causes of oppression, including misogyny and xenophobia, and they aim to increase the acceptance of gender and sexual diversity within Muslim communities and to promote a progressive understanding of Islam that is centered on inclusion, justice, and equality. Yeah, and one of the things that I hope always comes through um Whenever we talk about religions on this podcast, as we do fairly often, because I think we all sort of find them very interesting, Mm -hmm. uh, is it can be very easy to talk about religions, especially a religion that you don't personally hold in ways that are uh, sort of overgeneralized and Mm -hmm. overdetermined. Yeah. Uh, And so one thing I I hope you always take away from our discussions is uh, is the the incredible room for diversity of opinion uh, that exist within all these faith traditions around the world. Uh, There are a lot of ways to be a Christian, a lot of ways to be a Muslim, a lot of ways to be a Hindu or a Jew or anything. Indeed. 
And, you know, I know we have some Muslim listeners out there, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you have gone on the Hajj and you have seen the black stone with your own eyes or touched it with your with your own uh, body, uh, we would love to hear your account of that. Yeah. What was it like? What what, what do you think? And what color is it really? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You can uh, find us online, as always, at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, etc. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 